The Stein Online Clubland Q&A begins right now. Welcome along. It is 5 p.m. North American Eastern Time. That's 6 p.m. in the Canadian Maritimes, half past six in Newfoundland and Labrador and beyond the Americas. 10 p.m. in London and Dublin, 11 p.m. in Warsaw and Budapest, where the tide of refugees is unceasing. Midnight in a beleaguered Kiev and Odessa, 1 a.m. in the Kremlin where Vladimir Putin is up late. Half past one in Tehran for all you Newfoundlanders who moved to Iran for the half-hour time zone. 3.45 a.m. in Kathmandu for all you Iranians who moved to Nepal to check out the quarter-hour time zone. 6 a.m. in Singapore, Honkers and Perth. I'm sorry about that. 9 a.m. in Sydney, a far more convivial hour for the Kippers and Kedgeri. And Saturday afternoon for our listeners in the Pacific. Four years ago today, March the 4th, 2018, a Russian double agent who'd gone over to MI6, Sergei Skripal, and his daughter were poisoned with the nerve agent Novichok on the streets of Salisbury in Wiltshire in England. Okay, uh, let's get to it. Your questions. Uh, anyone around the world can listen to this show, all seven and a half billion of you, and we hope you are listening. Uh, to ask a question, you have to be a member of the Mark Stein Club. So if you don't want to ask a question, uh, you don't have to join the club. But if you do, you can join the club and we'll try and rush you to the head of the line. Brian from Minneapolis writes, Dear Mark, just how serious are our leaders on handling Russia? All of their actions have done nothing to stop Putin from continuing his quest to take over Ukraine, but have done much to embolden their image as showing solidarity with the people of Ukraine. Lapels with the Ukraine flag worn during the State of the Union, monetary donations, hashtags, protests and sanctions are nothing more than feel-good actions from nations that are acting as if there is nothing they can do but cheer on the people of Ukraine. Stability in Europe depended on America to be strong. Uh, steady on here, Brian. You're talking about... Uh, the last 70 years, which is a blink in the eye of history, won't even be recorded, actually. There's lots of 70-year periods centuries ago that we don't think about because they're not part of the big enduring trends. It's a sobering thought. Uh, stability in Europe depended on America to be strong and as a result caused Europe, including the UK, to bring itself into a state of civilizational bulimia. They tell each other they are special, 
But the magic mirror on the wall they look at themselves in tells them otherwise, no matter what they do. Do you believe the decline of Western self-confidence since the Great War stems from the belief that perusing your own nation's self-interest uh, is that perusing or pursuing? Pursuing your own nation's self-interest created slavery, systemic racism, inequality, and a whole other list of issues they believe was made from it. I see fear in the eyes of our leaders from what Putin did, and it's only going to get crazier as they try to fight but not fight. Well, you know, right now at this stage, actually uh, creating a no-fly zone over Ukraine might not be as reckless and dangerous as some of the rubbish they are doing. I'm thinking of, um, what's that twit from South Carolina called? Lindsey Graham calling for someone to plunge a dagger into the chest of Vladimir Putin. You know, I always think when Lindsey Graham is on the TV, <laughs> Republicans are losing. I got into trouble at Fox for this. The super duper executive senior vice president, a, a lovely lady called Mead, told me off for uh, uh, wondering why Sean Hannity had Lindsey Graham on three nights a week. Because Lindsey Graham's, uh, well, for studies a fake. I think the thing, the thing I was querying about was why he was, you know, approving all these Joe Biden judges, just waving them through. And uh, and yet he was on with Sean Hannity three nights a week as a rock-ribbed conservative. Now he's actually making lunatic moves, calling for someone to stab, to, to plunge a dagger, Brutus-like, he says, into the chest of uh, Vladimir Putin. There are thousands and thousands of American citizens and citizens of other Western nations in Russia at any one time. My daughter was one of them a couple of years ago. She went with a school group to St. Petersburg, had a lovely time and improved her Russian dramatically. Um, she speaks it rather well. We had a little period in time where uh, she would be emailing me in Russian and I would be uh, trying to figure out what it meant before emailing her back. But I would be absolutely furious if my daughter was in St. Petersburg right now and some bozo senator from the United States was calling for, for an aide to Vladimir Putin to kill him, uh, not to, to take him out, not to impeach him, not anything like that, just to stick a dagger in him. How is that helpful? How is that in the least bit helpful? And you can imagine... Uh, what you know, the vapors that the uh, the morons of the American media would be having if, if it was the other way round. If somebody, if somebody from the Duma was calling for somebody to plunge a dagger into Joe Biden and see if it makes any difference, um, it, it's 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 this is we saw last night in the early hours that this thing has the possibility uh, to be disastrous very easily. Because the Russians are under pressure. They've, they've lost, apparently, three commanders who were told they weren't leading from the front sufficiently. So they went to the front and then apparently the Ukrainians killed them. We, you know, we don't know whether that's true. That it might be like a lot of the interesting human interest stories from the war so far that turn out to be complete bollocks. 
Um, but I think it's fair to say that Putin wants those commanders to lead from the front. And in that situation, strange things can happen. Like for the first time in uh, history, an army firing on nuclear reactors, as happened in the early hours of the morning. Um, we're going, you know, the whole this whole thing is premised on the fact that Vladimir Putin has gone insane. Yet we're the ones who have important politicians calling for daggers to be plunged into Putin's chest. Or even, you know, at the more benign end, this poor soprano, singer with the Metropolitan Opera. I can't remember offhand whether she's a soprano or uh, an alto, contralto. I don't know. It's not relevant. But uh, she was employed by the Metropolitan Opera and then she wasn't because she refused publicly to denounce Vladimir Putin. Do you see where we're going with this? We've had two years of the COVID in which, as it went on, people got nuttier and more absolutist and a decent respect for a range of opinions all but disappeared. Uh, culminating in the Canadian trucker business in in Canada, when uh, when Justin Trudeau froze all the bank accounts of people who just donated twenty bucks to those truckers, and they're still trying to get some of them have been unfrozen. But a lot of people are still on the phone to the Royal Bank of Canada and the Bank of Montreal every day trying to get their accounts unfrozen, find out what the situation is. Oddly enough, it turns out that they were just warming up for the oligarch. Some oligarch yesterday uh, who co-owns, I think it's Everton Football Club in England, and uh, he's now been prevent he's his control of Everton or his ownership of Everton uh, has been taken away from him. Again, same reason as with the Canadian truckers, uh, because uh, he hasn't been convicted of any crime. Uh, but all over the UK and Europe, oligarchs are having their who had homes and yachts are having their homes and yachts confiscated. Now, I certainly object to Justin Trudeau freezing the uh, bank accounts of Canadian truckers. And I'm not altogether comfortable with a government that uh, seizes the mansions of oligarchs without there being uh, any uh, conviction for crime. I, I think I'm standing on principle on that, that the cure is worse than the disease, that the state... Uh, ought to be very careful about going down that path. But the reason I put them together is because I think it's clear we've been run by madmen for much of the last two years who got madder and madder and madder. And so now <laughs> we're in a... So the same people who say, well, if you're not vaccinated, you can't work in a, uh, in a New York hospital. The same kind of mentality is now firing a soprano from the Metropolitan Opera for refusing to denounce Vladimir Putin. And we're the ones saying Putin is nuts. It's very odd. Let's just see what's likely to come of this. Lindsey Graham gets his wish and somebody plunges a dagger into Putin's chest and Putin is dead. Putin, by the way, who's been quite a popular leader of Russia these last 20 years because life 
uh, has been, for many people, better than it's been in uh, living memory. Now, it's not great if you if you want to run a newspaper and uh, and insult Putin all the time. It's not a it's that's not so great any more than it is if you want to go on Twitter and say you think there's something iffy about the American elections. But uh, for the most part, for many people, uh, the last 20 years have been pretty good and they would not take kindly to somebody sticking a dagger in their leader at the behest of some total wanker of an American senator. And what I'd like to know from Lindsey Graham, I don't really want to know anything from Lindsey Graham. I would like it if he'd just take off and uh, go to the Dominican Republic for a couple of years. Uh, very affordable resorts. I'm sure he's got some pack that would uh, be happy to pick up the tab for him. And I think we would all benefit from it. But what do you think is likely to happen? What do you, If you got your way and the uh, president of the Russian Federation was assassinated at the behest of an American senator... Uh, you know, OK, so we got like the nuclear scare for three hours in the middle of the night. And then we've got this uh, demented uh, response to a war, a real war, uh, in which we fire uh, opera, opera singers unwilling. And those, it's, it seems perhaps it's a classical thing because there's some conductor in Germany who got fired, too. Uh, it's all very, uh, all very bizarre. We're not at war with Russia, <laughs> but we're doing war measures that would be regarded as insane if we were at war. And I have worries about this. I think uh, our leaders have demonstrated over the last two years that they're they're, they're either stupid and ineffectual because. You know, the most innocent explanation is that the lockdowns didn't work. That was known by early April 2020. And yet they still insisted on inflicting them for months and months and years and years, no matter that nothing worked. So they're either stupid and ineffectual or uh, they've gotten drunk with power. And uh, having totally bollocksed up a virus and public health, they're now applying the same model to war. Carolinan, is that the same as Carolinian? I don't know. I never know which it's meant to be. Carolinan says, Russia has blocked Twitter and Facebook. What do you call this suppression of speech or a belated public health measure? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I begin to understand why there were people who liked Putin. <laughs> uh, I'd be, I'd be all. I don't know about all this confiscating of private property and uh, your uh, co-ownership of Premier League football clubs and uh, firing operatic sopranos, but blocking Twitter and Facebook—that I could get with. Uh, James writes: If the world bifurcates into U.S. and Europe. Versus China, Russia, India, and the Middle East. How difficult will it get for Australia, Japan, and South Korea to stay on the West's side of that divide? Well, I don't think anyone can look at America and not see that it's dying. I mean, I, 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 I love America. I love America. And 
It's depressing to have to say that, but it's necessary to say that when you have these joke conservatives in the American media who just want to make with the, uh, you know, happy talk, keep talking, happy talk. And uh, that's what a lot of it is. You know, you've, you, you just lost a war six months ago in the most humiliating way. And yes, it was a NATO defeat. And a lot of NATO isn't very helpful. But uh, the, the, the NATO countries that were helpful were on board with that war. And they were treated disgracefully by thoroughly modern Millie and the rest of the woke wankers at the Pentagon. It was a NATO humiliation, but the responsibility for that lies with the Pentagon and with Joe Biden. This is the leadership of the... It's not a Republican-Democrat thing in the end, because most, most foreigners don't know the difference. They don't really care about that. They know when there's a Republican president that they're not meant to like him, and they know when there's a Democrat they're meant to like the Democrat. They get that they're in, instinctively. You know, Clinton, oh, I love Bill Clinton. I love Obama. Oh, I can't stand Bush is Hitler and Trump is Hitler. They get all that. They get all that. But beyond that, they have no idea. So it's like it's America that's in the toilet, not uh, you know, not Democrats or Republicans. And as I've said with Lindsey Graham, I think that's an astonishing thing to say. I have no idea why he would treat it, but it sums up the, the trivial, frivolous, fecklessness of a man like Graham, a lifetime legislator. It's war. Why don't you knock it off with the tweets, you complete prat? It's, it's war. Now, to go back to what James is saying, I think people get that both the U.S. and Europe are in steep decline, very steep decline. And, you know, regardless of what one thinks of China or Russia or India or, as he puts it, the Middle East, the Muslim world, as it were, uh, they have the wind at their backs to one degree or another in the way that the US and Europe don't. And it's not even just Joe Biden, really. When you look at the people around, Joe Biden is going to be succeeded any moment now by a complete airhead, uh, someone who humiliates the United States every time she opens her mouth. Um, and I don't want to, in case I'm being accused of being racist because I'm being rude about Kamala, who actually is my fellow British subject. <laughs> She's a, uh, a born and bred. She's a uh, half Jamaican, half Indian, and she was raised in Montreal. Uh, so um, uh, I look on her as my Commonwealth cousin. And uh, com uh, but I don't want to just in case it's racist. Blinken, Blinken is a man, or that guy with the dancing eyebrows, Kirby, who's the what? What is he? The Pentagon spokesperson. These are pitiful people. Pitiful people uh, to be putting on the world uh, stage. And I think you know that's that's the question. Uh, when everything you do only confirms the fecklessness and weakness, when in fact it would be better if you just did nothing.
It would be better if you did what most Americans want, what judging, you know, what most people who listen to uh, conservative talk radio appear to want, that you just talk about the Super Bowl or whatever for three hours a day or uh, or do the reactive thing where, you know, someone on The View says something stupid. So you all talk about what someone on The View said. For, for It'd be better if they just it'd be better if they just did that. And Europe, you know, we go back to what Brian was saying. And yeah, Europe is fading, full of fading powers, uh, faded powers, some of which have, you know, if you, a lot of this is like Habsburg mocking up as I've been uh, talk, mopping up as I've been talk, talking about. You know, uh, Vienna was the capital of a mighty European empire. And after the Great War, it became just the capital of a backwater. It's really too big and too grand for such a tiny, irrelevant country. But they've psychologically adjusted to that. And the point to bear in mind here, and why I think this war is in danger, unless people like Blinken, Biden, Lindsey Graham all get the hell out of the way, why it's in danger of going off in directions that we seriously don't want, is even dying powers, which everybody knew. People long before the First World War had a vague feeling that the Habsburg Empire would not survive the death of Franz Josef. Um, who was it? The Marquis of Lansdowne, who called uh, the the Turk the Turk is the sick man of Europe. But nevertheless, it required global conflagration to finish off uh, the Ottoman Empire and the Habsburg Empire. So you have to be very careful, very careful about this this uh, the way things are going at the moment. It's just. Uh, it, it, I'm astonished, you know. Okay, that's fine. You don't want to go to war. You don't go to war. But you stop doing stuff like Lindsey, Lindsey Graham shouldn't be a senator. Lindsey Graham wants there's 200 countries. He wants boots on the ground in all 200 of them. Well, whoop de doo But could you at least hold it together enough not to call for the assassination of world leaders, as if that's a useful contribution to debate. It's not. It's pathetic, particularly pathetic from such a big bloody loser. Uh, Robert Bridges says, Dear Mark, just how far will the Davos New World Order World Economic Forum go to defeat Russia? What happens if Ukraine, quote, wins, unquote? Uh, You know, this is why it feels a bit like August... 1914, because it it uh, it's hard to see anything that one would regard in conventional terms as a win. Now, obviously, that doesn't matter for the Pentagon because they can't win anything anyway. But these Ukrainian guys in the streets and uh, the the fellows in the Kremlin, they they're not as sophisticated and subtle as thoroughly modern Millie. So they think of winning in more primal terms than those twerps in the Pentagon do. Um, this is... So I don't think we're talking about... I think, I think the question is whether it can be contained. Now, for example, I think when I was on air, uh, 
yesterday on the Mark Stein show, the number of refugees was officially, I think, 900 and something thousand. So I rounded it up to a million for anyone who's watching the show uh, in on on Friday morning uh, after the broadcast, because by then it would have crossed a million. Instead, it's rocketed up to near a million and a half. I made a joke, I think it was on Tuesday's or Wednesday shows, that the current rate, if the war went on for another nine months, there would be no uh, Ukrainians left in Ukraine. I'm going to have to revise that down to about six months, um, because the... Uh, the, the the rate of people fleeing uh, has increased so dramatically. So this is going to have huge costs just on Poland, for example, which in the last week, uh, in the last in, in a week and a half, will have taken in as many refugees as uh, Muti Merkel took in from Syria in the space of however many months or maybe a year it was. Uh, four or five years ago. Furthermore, uh, in part because of what is really not economically significant, but is just punitive, like firing Sopranos, uh, there are now uh, there's now a refugee tide from Russia. People can't access their money. Uh, and they're figuring that things are going to get uh, pretty bad. So, for example, on the Russo-Finnish border, that's being overwhelmed by Russians fleeing Russia. I've no idea where all this is going. Do you think Lindsey Graham does? Do you think Joe Biden does? You know, these people can't run wars uh, against goat herds. Now they're doing it with a nuclear power in the heart of Europe. A power with more uh, with a man they say is mad, insane, crazy, lunatic, but he happens to have more nuclear weapons than anybody else on the planet. And just to make things more fun, you're calling for him to be assassinated. You know, so if you like the Afghan fiasco, <laughs> this after just a week, we had to wait 20 years for that scale of fiasco. And here we are just eight days into this thing. Um, James Driscoll says, given the U.S. dollar as world reserve currency will collapse in the near future, together with the likelihood that China and Russia will establish alternative swift payment systems. And given that Putin understands this, who's to say he's not the one who will be in a superior position once this war comes to an end? We, the West, will be flailing in economic chaos while he and China will be relatively powerful. Yes? No? Is his timing of the war tied to the West's downfall? We're living in the present while he's looking at the future and the future survival of his country. Yes, you know, that's a very good way of putting it. The swift payment system, I think it's Belgian. I think it's Belgian. Uh, and it's the de facto uh, money transfer system for most of the world. But it's not actually the only one. Uh, there is an alternative one that the Chinese have. And if you exclude Russia and its money from the SWIFT system, it's these guys are loaded. I mean, they're getting all this money every day from the United States, among others, buying all the oil and from Europe buying all the gas. So they got all the money 
Uh, and they have the money uh, with China to expand the existing Chinese system. So what you'll end up with is likely to be a situation whereby uh, as much as you're excluding Russia from SWIFT, so you're excluding yourselves from the alternative system. Then we have the interesting phenomenon of recent years, which is the beginning of the end of the dollar as global currency, which is that, uh, for example, this deal they did uh, just the other day, Russia and China, they used to do 90% of their deals in US dollars because it is the global currency. But they're not doing them now. They're not doing them in US dollars now. So the thing about this is this is a, if you look at it from Putin's point of view, you know, he knows Americans don't want to go to war after Afghanistan because, because they'd lose the war. I mean, that's a sad thing to say, but that happens to, be, that happens to be true. There's no evidence. There's no evidence that any of those beribboned buffoons who appear in congressional hearings have the first clue about how to wage war. Now, I'm not saying the Ukrainians or the Russians do, but we certainly know uh, after after Kabul, the fall of Kabul, that the beribboned buffoons of the Pentagon just can't do it. So if you're Putin and you're gaming this thing out, you'll know that they're not going to go to war over Ukraine. They're not going to do that. Um, so that what they're going to do is sanctions. Now, at the same time, they're going to be hypocritical sanctions because what's, in, what's incredible about this is that every day, oil, Russian oil continues to be shipped to America, a country whose politicians are demanding that Putin uh, be assassinated. So that's, that's great. If you've ever tried, if you've ever lived in New Hampshire and uh, your oil tank runs out unexpectedly in February and it's a snowy day and you call, call the oil company and say you need an emergency delivery, uh, ask yourself if it helps if you've called for the assassination of your oil delivery guy. Um, and so, uh, and every day uh, gas is still going to Germany, uh, Russian gas. So if he gamed that out too, then he'd understand that he would still be getting an enormous amount of money every day uh, and that a lot of these uh, a lot of these sanctions would wind up hurting Americans, uh, Britons, Europeans, and uh, long before they hurt anybody who matters in Russia. You know, this is a very weird this this war. The Chinese should have taught us that the nature of war has changed. Sometimes you get old fashioned war comes along. You know, like the way the Russians do it, reducing entire cities to rubble. Uh, but then there are all kinds of other ways of waging war. And the Chinese are actually pretty good at that. Uh, there's no evidence we are. Eric Redman of Louisville, Kentucky writes, Am I a cult of one? In finding Sean Hannity, Laura Ingram, and I'm reluctant to include a youngster who seems to be trying in more ways than one, Charlie Kirk, 
Am I in a cult of one in finding them highly scripted and marginally literate? In particular, I'm talking about basic grammar, pronunciation and blanking or worse on rudimentary historical references. Much enjoy your banter and guests on GB News. I won't I won't go with the pronunciation. Or is it pronunciation? <laughs> Old joke. Um because I'm the guy who once referred to the lieutenant governor of Virginia. I'd been away for a couple of months and I came back and I was on with Tucker. <laughs> and I, uh, I started uh, talking about the lieutenant governor of Virginia. I was lucky to survive that one, I think. <laughs> uh, I, no, I, I wouldn't say that. Laura Ingram is, an, is extremely sharp and uh, extremely intelligent and and uh, you wouldn't I don't think you'd want to she's particularly well informed actually on things like European issues actually uh, so I wouldn't say I wouldn't say that about Laura and to be honest uh, you know Charlie Kirk I don't I don't really know I wish him all the best you can make a lot of money uh, out of conservatism Inc uh, and good luck and good luck to you it's it's different it's different when there's it's different in a situation like this um and 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 that's why it's you know it's not the same as covering cpac uh it's not the same as talking about black lives matter it's it's different but laura ingram i wouldn't underestimate ali writes mark do you think zelensky ukraine is blackmailing biden What's the real connection between Ukraine and the Biden administration? Well, as I've been saying for over a year now, if you look at what's on Hunter Biden's laptop, and many people, of course, have no idea what's on Hunter Biden's laptop because the court eunuchs of the American press all protected uh, the American people from ever finding out what's on Hunter Biden's laptop. But if you look at just the emails that are on that, and then you think about the emails that Peking has and the emails that Moscow has and then the emails that the Ukrainians have just from Biden's family just running around stealing money from there. Oligarchs, oligarchs. I, I got a question about this, I think, on uh, GB News. You know, oligarchs aren't just in Russia and the East. We have corrupt oligarchs thieving. The difference, of course, is that, yeah, they do have all these people. Zelensky, Putin, Chairman Xi, all of the goods on Biden. He's a, he's a crook. He's been a crook all his life. It, it isn't difficult to figure this out. He's, he's been on a government salary for 50 years, and he has a property portfolio that would not disgrace a minor oligarch. Now, how did he get that? If, if he held a Russian passport... Boris Johnson's ministry in London would be confiscating his mansions and his football clubs. And the French would be confiscating his yacht. But the thing about, the thing about this is these guys, Chairman Xi and Putin, both have serious dirt on him. We saw with Hillary how easy it is uh, to hack into 
uh, to hack into these things. Uh, it's uh, Mark Stein's Clubland Q&A live around the planet taking your questions. We'll have a lot more of them coming up, a lot more questions, a lot more answers. But first, as we always do, and particularly so in the present circumstances, with this week's episode, A Sense of Perspective. Keep up to date with the past on the 100 Years Ago Show with Mark Stein. A coup in Fuma, a youth league in Germany, and a lady in the House of Lords. It's March 1922. A hundred years from today. Your World News Update. The messy aftermath of the Great War continues. The free state of Fuma has existed in an inlet of the eastern Adriatic for some 18 months now, until fascist leaders began shelling government headquarters. The president of the Fuma, Ricardo Zanella, was given three minutes to agree to surrender to the putsch leader, Giovanni Giuriati. President Zanella did so. Signor Giuriati is a fascist party member of the Italian Chamber of Deputies, and although the free state of the Fuma is recognised by Great Britain, France and the United States, its new ruler intends to have it reincorporated into the Kingdom of Italy. The Russian Soviet Federative Socialist Republic has reversed its previous position. Georgi Chicherin, the foreign minister, has told famine relief officials that the Bolsheviks have agreed to honour the international debts incurred by the Russian Empire. The Soviet government has signed a commercial treaty with the Kingdom of Sweden. The devil makes work for idle hands, and that's particularly true of young lads, so a political party in Germany has come up with a way to keep them occupied. The rising National Socialist German Workers' Party is launching its own Jugendbund, a youth league divided into three sections, one for boys aged 14 to 16, another for boys 16 to 18, and a third section for girls. The French administrators of the new mandate of Syria have announced the creation of an autonomous state for members of the Druze religion. No such luck for religious minorities in Canada following new laws on the regulation of schools within Mennonite communities in Manitoba and Saskatchewan. Thousands of members of that Christian sect have decided to leave Canada for Mexico. The first train of migrating Mennonites has now departed from the railway station at Plum Coulee, Manitoba. The 14th Canadian Parliament has been opened in Ottawa by the Governor-General, Lord Bing. It is the first three-party House of Commons since the very first Parliament in 1867, which included not just Liberals and Conservatives, but members of the Anti-Confederation Party. The new third party is the Progressive Party. The new Prime Minister is the Liberal leader, Mr Mackenzie King. The legislators of Montreal, by contrast, have nowhere to meet. The handsome five-storey City Hall, built in 1891 in the Second Empire style at a cost of over $1 million, has been all but completely destroyed by a fire. Only the outer wall remains.
When the late Lord Rondo was raised to a Viscountcy, a condition of his acceptance, bluntly stated to His Majesty the King, was that it should pass by special remainder to his daughter Margaret, a survivor of the Lusitania and a well-known suffragette who was briefly jailed for putting a chemical bomb in a postbox. The second Viscountess Rhonda is a woman of strong opinions, but should the House of Lords have to listen to them? Lady Rhonda has sued under the Sex Disqualification Removal Act of 1919 to sit in their Lordship's house, and the Committee for Privileges and Conduct has ruled in her favour. It appears she will be the first lady member of the House of Lords. Edwina Ashley is the 20-year-old great-granddaughter of the Earl of Shaftesbury and the granddaughter of the Jewish financier Sir Ernest Castle, who died last year, leaving her £2 million and a palatial London residence, Brook House in Park Lane. By contrast, Lord Louis Mountbatten is a Royal Navy lieutenant living on a salary of a mere £610 a year. However, his godmother and great-grandmother was Queen Victoria, and he is said to be favoured by his cousin the King. So Miss Ashley has announced her engagement to Lord Louis, and the couple will marry this summer. In the United States, the government has formally declined to participate in the upcoming Genoa Economic and Financial Conference. A group of female newspaper reporters has founded what it calls the New York Newspaper Women's Club. For I'm a jazz familiar with jazz vampires, those forward young ladies of a modern disposition who can seduce you with their fast ways and infest so many American cities. Many of us recall Theda Barra vamping on the picture screens in A Fool There Was just six years ago. But what about non-jazz vampires, vampires who bite you in the neck and suck your blood? Well, the first vampire picture has been unveiled before an invited audience at the theatre in the Berlin Zoological Gardens. It is called Nosferatu and is said to be a great success notwithstanding its similarities to the 1897 novel Dracula by Bram Stoker, whose heirs might want to think about enforcing his copyright. The Cradle, starring Ethel Clayton and Charles Meredith, is the new picture sensation in America. It tells the story of a child who spends half the year with each of his two divorced parents and of the toll it takes. You may prefer Sherlock Holmes, which stars John Barrymore as the famous detective. The show business paper Variety has launched a new feature. A ranking of the most popular dramatic pictures in the United States is compiled from receipts in New York and other selected cities. The first number one film in America is Foolish Wives 
directed by Eric von Stroheim. Will Hayes has resigned as U.S. Postmaster General and quit the cabinet to become chairman of the new motion picture Producers and Distributors of America. If you're worried about all the vamping women and debauched men on screen and off, Mr. Hayes intends to hose down the sewer. The potentialities of the moving picture for moral influence and education are limitless, he told reporters, and therefore its integrity should be protected as we protect the integrity of of our churches. What a glittering city is Detroit, home not only to America's automotive industry, but also now to the so-called million-dollar ballroom. The Greystone Ballroom has opened its doors, and stunned patrons marveled at a spectacular dance floor that can hold 3,000 people. Life seems full of clouds and rain, and I am full of nothing and pain. Who soothes my thumping, bumping brain? Nobody. When winter comes with snow and sleet, and me with hunger and cold feet. Who says here's 25 cents? Go ahead and get something to eat. No, but I never done love in the war, Bobby. I never done love in the war, in no time. Get something from somebody sometime. No, never do nothing for nobody. No there was nobody like Bert Williams, the great vaudevillian who, in the words of Booker T. Washington, smiled his way into people's hearts. A few days ago, Mr. Williams collapsed on stage in Detroit and quipped to his fans as he recovered, that's a nice way to die. He returned home to New York, but his condition worsened, and he has left us at the age of just 47. He was the first Negro to be a leading man on Broadway and in the pictures, and he will be the first Negro to be given a funeral at the Masonic Lodge in Manhattan. Some 5,000 mourners have filed past his casket. Olive Klein and Marguerite Dunlap singing Beautiful Ohio. Beautiful Ohio now has its first private radio station, WHK in Cleveland, which will broadcast Tuesday and Sunday concert series. WEAF, owned by the American Telephone and Telegraph Company, has gone on the air in New York with an opening broadcast featuring the aforementioned Madam Dunlap. need 
of an indoor thunderstorm? Well, that we can do. At the General Electric Laboratories in Schenectady, New York, the inventor Charles Steinmetz has succeeded in producing and controlling an indoor thunderstorm with the successful test of generators that can discharge over 100,000 volts of electricity at 10,000 amperes for 0.01 seconds. China boys. For two months, Chinese shipping workers in Hong Kong and Canton have been on strike because non-Chinese workers get paid significantly more. The strike is now over. Shipping companies have agreed to increase the China boys' wages by up to 30%. In South Africa, white miners are calling for a general strike after their employers announced they would be opening semi-skilled jobs to non Europeans, that's to say black and Asiatic workers. In sports news, the baseball player Babe Ruth has signed a new three-year contract with the New York Yankees, providing a base salary of $50,000 per year, plus a bonus of $500 for every home run he hits. Contract negotiations came down to the flip of a coin by Yankees co-owner Tillinghast Houston. If Ruth won, he would get his demands. If not, he would have to settle for less. Babe yelled, Tails! And when the coin settled on Colonel Houston's carpet, Tails it was. America's most famous sharpshooter has still got it at the age of 61. Annie Oakley has just shot a record 98 out of 100 clay targets from a distance of 16 yards. There will be no such triumphs in old age for the Spanish footballer Pichichi. He is dead of typhus at 29. Nor for the French tennis player William Laurence, who won the World Hardcourt Championships a year and a half ago. He is dead of septicemia brought on by influenza. The Norwegian freighter Gruntoft was carrying cargo from Galveston, Texas to Esbjerg in Denmark when it foundered in a North Atlantic storm about 500 miles southeast of Nova Scotia. The steamship Estonia raced to the scene but found no trace of the vessel. The last message from the telegraph operator read, the boats are smashed and some of the men were swept overboard. We are almost awash now. I may be driven out any minute. Hurry, you may not hear from me again. All 25 men are lost. The breezes blow across the Atlantic too. A hurricane has swept the coast of England and winds of 108 miles per hour have been recorded in the Scilly Isles near Cornwall. Harry Keller was the man Houdini called America's greatest magician. He thrilled 19th century audiences with such feats as the levitation of Princess Karnak and his eerie self-decapitation in which his severed head would leave his body and float around the stage. Perhaps it will do so again now that Mr Keller is dead at 72. Charles Robinson Rockwood was a descendant of John Robinson of the Mayflower, 
who, like his forebear, established new colonies. This time on the far side of the American continent, a civil engineer and irrigation specialist, he designed the canal system that enabled development in the Colorado desert of Southern California and transformed it into what is now known as the Imperial Valley. He is dead at 61. Have you had crab meat remick at the Plaza Hotel in Manhattan? It was named for William Remick, then president of the New York Stock Exchange. Mr. Remick is dead at the age of 55. Lady Hope was an evangelist and very active in the temperance movement. However, she is better known for her claim at a Bible conference in Massachusetts six years ago that she had visited Charles Darwin on his deathbed and that he had told her he regretted ever publishing his work on the origin of species. I was a young man with unformed ideas, he supposedly said. To my astonishment, the ideas took like wildfire. People made a religion of them. Mr. Darwin's children furiously denied Lady Hope's account and dismissed it as a complete fabrication. Lady Hope is dead at 79. And that's the way of the world, March 1922. A hundred years from today. A hundred years from today. Clubland Q&A. Welcome back to your questions. Uh, and uh, let's... Uh, let, let me, what do you think? What do we, uh, what do we got? I should have... <laughs> Uh, there's too many good, there's too many good questions. Uh, we're overwhelmed by them. Um, Jan Shebout, I think this is an interesting one, not sure I know the answer, uh, says, Mark, my ex-military husband wonders why Russia doesn't just go in with the biggest bombs and bomb the Hades out of the Ukraine, and vice versa for NATO. You know, they're actually waging this war rather oddly, not incompetently, but oddly. And uh, I think one of the reasons they're doing it that way is just to keep everybody in NATO on their toes. They know NATO does not want to get into this. You know, you don't want to get into a... The whole thing during the Cold War was mutually assured destruction. It's not the same now because we're not who we were 30 years ago and they're not who they were 30 years ago. So the, the if this escalates... He's going to be enjoying the escalation far more than we are. Um, so he's playing it rather oddly and rather carefully. And I think the reason is he knows it's more destabilizing played like this. The thing is, the one thing, you know, if you look at uh, Iraq or Afghanistan, the first 48 hours, shock and awe. So if it does escalate to the point where NATO gets in, then the Pentagon will want to go shock and awe. If you if you don't do anything to provoke that quite, you can destabilize your enemies uh, a lot uh, for a lot longer and a lot more to your advantage. Kate Smythe writes from Australia. Mark, at the start of the week, you noted a common thread between COVID and Ukraine with people 
being killed by a Chinese lab-made virus and Russian missiles, respectively. Now, yeah, that's not quite the point I was making. I'm. I was just. I was just struck by the pressure to impose a narrative from which none can dissent. Uh, that 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 was my that was my main point. And then the second point, which we were talking about at the top of the show, is that the people who've been governing, you know, previously perfectly sane countries, they might be a bit too left wing for your taste, but they were sane lefties. Uh, Canada, New Zealand, Australia, as um, Alexandra Marshall, my guest on the Mark Stein show yesterday, said, it's like uh, Canada, Australia, and New Zealand are suddenly competing in the authoritarian Olympics. Well, now we're at war, and the same people who've gone bonkers the last two years have decided to put us into war. And Kate goes on, she goes, but what about the intended effect and the sense that in the wake of an engineered pandemic, the elites want World War III. Isn't the influence of globalists on world events beyond mere opportunism now undeniable? Yes, I think that's true. I uh, said last night that I think these people are seriously... You know, I think, I think a good way to start with things is just to, let's say, from now on, we're just going to listen to what everyone says and go from that. So we have a complete wanker like Lindsey Graham calling for the assassination of Putin on the one hand. And then we have these fellows who just keep talking about the Great Reset. And Klaus Schwab, you know, I, I keep coming back to this at the precise point at which Klaus Schwab became transitioned from just being some boring bloke living in Switzerland to a great global figure. And I go back to the late 80s when he changed the name of the European Management Forum to the World Economic Forum. And I think these people are serious. I think serious people have concluded, and particularly if you, if you seriously believe in the climate change rubbish, then clearly democracy is an obstacle to that because you're talking about – we always get a lot of questions about the short-termism of democracies because democracy right now, you know, there's supply chain problems and uh, gas in the United States is uh, five bucks a gallon. It's over five bucks a gallon in California. It's never been that before. And, uh, oh, gosh, yes, well, people are so focused on that that they might get rid of Joe Biden's debt. Uh, Democrat Congress come November. And that would be a great shame if only we could get these people not to be quite so short term about everything. So uh, democracy is an obstacle to what these people want. Kate says, while neocons who didn't predict armed conflict call for an escalation in unison with their boots on the ground counterparts on the left, the point has been made by some that NATO was no trigger for Putin's invasion and that on the contrary he saw opportunity in the west's weakness yes i think i said this i think i said this either yesterday or the day before i i, I again i'm taking people i'm just believing everything that people say now so like the russian mp who says oh yes we've been planning this for a year well that would go back to uh oh what would the date be january the 20th 2021 
You know, people aren't idiots. And they realize, particularly with, in relations with the United States, it's different when you're dealing with the parliamentary systems because you never know. You know, like Kate's country of Australia, you're never really sure who's going to be prime minister in a month's time. You know, all kinds of things can happen. But America is just rigid on this fixed election system. It's like clockwork. So, you know, you have a president. The president... Uh, gets defeated. So a new president takes over. He's a joke. He's obviously not running things. He can barely stay awake. So obviously somebody else is running things. It's some Democrat scam that's going on. What does it mean if you're a foreign leader? Well, if they're as bad as this guy, then, then you know, in the midterms, there's going to be a pushback and the other guys will be elected. So, uh, and that might complicate things. You never really know. It doesn't, it doesn't really because you've just got blowhards like Lindsey Graham calling for assassination. But it does mean you have a clear two-year window just to, and in fact, it helps even because of, you know, the superpower, the whole superpower with ADHD thing, it helps to do it in the first year of a weak president's term. Because that, you want to keep him in office. So if you do, if you do all these terrible things in the first year, like the Afghan fiasco, and now we have the invasion of Ukraine, then it's still quite a long time till November. And people might forget about it. Oh, you know, never know. He might issue a new uh, initiative on transgendered bathrooms. So he might survive the midterms more or less okay. And uh, then we'll keep him in office. That's how the that's how these guys uh, think. Uh, Robert Fox says one of the advantages countries like China and Russia have over the U.S. is they can install a strongman who can strategize and implement long-term plans to erode the influence and image of their enemies. The current constitutional environment, <laughs> the constitutional environment, does not allow for any kind of strongman to lead the United States because the president is never around long enough in office. What does this portend for the future of the United States over the remainder of the century, if anything? I don't think there's going to be anything recognizable as the United States at the end of the century, Robert. Make your plans now. It's the I talked about demography. People don't like talking about demography, for example. Uh, but, you know, the state of nations uh, is, is the intersection of various factors. Uh, in in um, and we might actually do this. I'm thinking. Uh, I'm thinking we might do it in relation to Ukraine. When you have serious demographic transformation, now we have. I, I said on TV that Ukraine has the worst demographics of any sovereign nation on earth, except South Korea. Now Russia has rubbish demographics too. That's why if you're in Ukraine, you'll have noticed that a lot of the unenthusiastic infantrymen uh, that are uh, around and about your country at the moment are Muslim soldiers from Chechnya. Um, but Russia's demographics aren't quite as bad as uh, Ukraine's. Eastern Europe has some of the worst demographic um, 
deathbed demographics on Earth. And certainly it, it's sobering that because it's the most obvious way in which people do not vote for the, the future. There are many admirable qualities about Eastern Europe. They don't have any truck with the woke rubbish. I mean, I can't get over how totally crap and unwatchable American news is. I watched like three minutes of ABC just to see what they were saying about the whole Ukraine thing. I think it was ABC. Might have been CBS. Doesn't really matter because they're all rubbish. And they had a thing about how uh, there's a transgender person. I didn't realize uh, she was transgender because she looked. I was reminded she had looked so lovely and comely. And I thought, oh, yes, those Ukrainian women, they really are delightful, aren't they? <laughs> And then uh, it went on for a bit. And I go, oh, yeah, it's the usual thing. Trans people have very difficult time during this war because there's not a big trans support network in Kiev. So even as the bombs are falling all around, you know, if you're a cis woman, it's great because you've got a strong support network to help get you out. But if you're a trans woman, it's terrible. And then because Ukraine doesn't recognize gender identity for the purpose of passports, you then have all this trouble when you're fleeing Ukraine, you're trying to get into Moldova, or you're trying to get into Slovakia, and you've got a passport that says you're a man. And I just thought to myself, you can't give it up, you guys. You are you're a dying society, and you're determined to die with the same fatuous crapola that you've lived with for the last 20 years. You don't actually deserve to survive. It's war. It's a real war. All War is hell, and it's hell for all kind of people. It's hell for cis people, and it's hell for trans people. But mainly, it's hell for people. And that's the terms you should be trying to... Oh, yes. Okay, we've got this little war going on, but the war, in fact, is just uh, the merely the latest example of the rampant transphobia all around. We're stupid society. It's not going to survive, and it doesn't, frankly, deserve to survive. So that's my that's my thing there. You know, this is an opportunity to get real. And in some ways, you know, the Germans, for example, uh, turning on a sixpence, turning on a dime, however you prefer it, uh, with view to have suddenly realized, oh, wait a minute, we thought we were beyond all that. And now suddenly we've got a great big nuclear power going bananas uh, just uh, uh, on the uh, on the near horizon, and we've got cities being bombed to rubble uh, on the near horizon. So Germans are getting real. ABC or CBS or whoever it was, oh, yeah, there's not a big trans support network in Kiev. I don't know. I didn't know that, did you? That changes everything. That changes my whole perspective on the war. Uh, okay, let's, uh, let's see. The uh, time is... <laughs> Counting, uh, uh, counting down now, and uh, we're gonna we got to see if we can get a uh, few. Jeffrey Andrew, this is a cute one. Has this Russia-Ukraine war taken all the focus off Canada's new dictatorship, and when will it be revisited? I don't know that it has actually. Um, we're going to be doing a bit more of it uh, next week. And, and as I said, the similarities, basically, we're treating now, we're now treating Russian oligarchs the way we treat uh, donors to Canadian truckers, which is disturbing.
and um, uh, and uh, I don't think it's going to get any uh, any uh, better as well. Uh, uh, let's. Uh, I'm, I'm trying to see if we've got anything that's less miserable. Oh, Michael Cavino says this. Hi, Mark. The Mark Stein show on GB News is a home run. Your monologue yesterday was a thing of beauty. Indeed, Bo Snurdly just praised it on his radio show a few minutes ago. In your interview with Ray Williams this week, Ray is the guy who uh, introduced Elton John to Bernie Taupin. You mentioned going to see the great songwriting team of Lieber and Stoller in concert. Uh, I don't think I did that, actually, because I don't I don't know that they ever did any concerts. I'll tell you what they did do and how I got to uh, know them. Um, Did you ever have an opportunity to interview them? They were a hugely influential team that can write in almost any genre, be it playlets, as they call their songs for the coasters, pop and rock for Elvis Presley and others, or jazz for Peggy Lee. Uh, What are your personal favourites? Can they be featured in a future song? I'll just tell you how I used to know. I used to see them at a happy period in my life. A very happy period. I I used to go to uh, Basco and PRS events in London and uh, ASCAP events in New York and sometimes joint events where the London side would invite the New York side and the New York side would invite the London side. So you'd be in a room with all these uh, songwriters and they were, you know, they were the current chappies. There was... uh, Phil Collins, for example, and uh, uh, then there were all the the old guys, uh, and so I'd often find myself at these. And they, uh, for some reason, I don't quite know why, I used to get put uh, sat at the same table as Lieber and Stoll. And I remember uh, one time uh, just sitting between Sammy Fain. Sammy Fain wrote, "I'll be seeing you," and. Uh, Love is a many splendid thing and, you know, fabulous catalogue, but getting getting on a bit. He must have been in his 80s then. And on the other side of me uh, was uh, was Lieber and Stoller. And, um, and they, uh, they, they must have been, I guess, in their 60s and more 70s or whatever it was then. But their whole joke, they, uh, you know, Jerry Lieber used to... Uh, <laughs> say to me, oh, they get us to represent the voice of youth. And I liked some of their, I liked, uh, they wrote Pearl's a Singer for Elkie Brooks, and that's a fine record and a and a fine song. I, I like that. But they'd always, all these songwriters then, as the evening wore on, they would come up and they would do some of their numbers, or if we were honouring Irving Berlin or somebody like that, they would... Uh, do an Irving Berlin, you know, they'd get Phil Collins to do an Irving Berlin song or whatever. Uh, But a lot of the time the guy, so, you know, Burton Lane would do on a clear day you can see forever and then Sammy Fain would do I'll Be Seeing You. And then they'd ask Lieber and Stoller to come up and do something. And and, uh, Mike Stoller used to uh, play the piano and Jerry Lieber would then sing... And uh, and they'd and and they do some of their hits, and they'd always end with "I'm a woman," and uh, uh, which they wrote for Peggy Lee. <laughs> and it was, 
you know, I can wash out 44 pairs of socks and have them hanging on the line. <laughs> I can starch and add two dozen shirts before you can count from one and nine. And they, and then when you got to Kazaba Wubba, the Jerry Lieber used to do these like little dips, womanly, dainty little womanly dips. So whenever I think of the song, I'm a woman, in my mind, it's always Jerry Lieber uh, singing, I'm a woman. And that's a happy thought for me. And I don't have a lot of, there's not a lot of happy thoughts right now. So I thank you uh, for bringing that one, uh, that one up. Um, uh, and, uh, uh, what, what, what have we got there? I'm, I'm finding it very hard to uh, go through. Uh, Wanda Sherratt says, just to lighten the mood, last month the least watched Olympics in history took place. Do you think the Olympics are a relic of the 20th century and will soon be abandoned? I don't think you can have... I don't think you can have the Olympics in places where... I mean, for a start, what's happened is we've had the great professionalization of sports, which I think has wrecked things like the Olympics. So they're not... The people aren't... The people participating aren't as nice. They're too pumped. That It's too professionalized. And secondly, I think that uh, it is slightly old-fashioned to be told that, you know, the nation state is a relic and we don't want nationalism and blah, 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 blah. And then suddenly it's, oh, Team USA for two weeks. What's up with that? Either the nation, if the nation state is a bad thing, uh, then why do you cheer a particular javelin thrower for no reason other than that the javelin thrower comes from your country? So it doesn't, that's complicated things. But I think the main reason is that there's a shame. We're not ignorant enough to know that what we've done with China shames us. We've ruined our own. Certainly the United States has ruined itself. Functioning communities that are now just rotted out. There's no business there. There's crappy service jobs. No one needs the crappy service jobs uh, because uh, they're all good. since the COVID, they're all going to be automated. And in any case, uh, they've got these uh, illegal immigrants who will do it for a third of what uh, you would have to do for it. So we've destroyed our communities. And as we now see, we're dealing with a monstrous nation that unleashed this virus on the world and we can't even speak up against it. This is the interesting thing to me. This is what's changed. This is a big takeaway from the last two years. I thought we didn't have the guts to actually stick it down China's throat and realize uh, that we'd gotten into bed in a complete with a completely evil regime that doesn't care that it kills millions of people around the planet. But it's worse than that. It's our complicity that means we can't be honest about COVID, even now. Even now, when you have things like the government of Scotland and the uh, Centers for Disease Control in the U.S., also, oh yes, no, we're not going to we're not going to uh, issue the statistics in the same way that we have done for months now, uh, because people are misrepresenting them. Well, why don't you just give us the statistics and we'll figure out our own representation or misrepresentation of them? Well, no, 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 no. 
because so so we're complicit in it. So the COVID is fascinating because it symbolizes perfectly the great evil uh, with which we are complicit. Uh, that it's not just that we were stupid and led a bad guy into our lives and the bad guy killed millions of people. It's that we're evil too, to the extent that we were doing things that we shouldn't have been doing, and as a result, uh, millions of people have died. And I think at a certain level, people understand that. Who, who really can have a good time watching the Olympics from China? It's only relevance. It's only relevance. I certainly hope they enjoyed it in Ukraine because it's only relevance is that Chairman Xi told Putin not to invade Ukraine until after the Olympics. Uh, we're, running, uh, we're running out on, of time. I thank you as always. Uh, for your questions. We had a little bit of uh, Ukrainian music. Uh, not really. but <laughs> You know what we did. We ended with Johnny Mathis singing a great Ukrainian song by Dmitry Tiomkin. And uh, that was last week. And so this week, there were so many Ukrainian composers and lyricists, I thought we'd have another. Uh, just to be clear, I'm not being Russophobic here. I'm not one of these guys who wants to fire sopranos who don't denounce Putin. Um, there are many great songwriters from all over the Russian Empire. Many day, decades ago, back when I was sitting next to uh, Lieber and Stolo at, uh, at dinner, I used to make the point this way, and I haven't made it this way since the last millennium, so I thought I'd dust it off again. The Tsar's treatment of the Jews was the all-time greatest gift to the American songbook. Indeed, it may be the all-time greatest gift in the history of music. Uh, and that includes various natives uh, of the Ukraine. For example, Isidore Minsky, born in Odessa, January 16, 1894. His family moved to New York and Isidore Minsky became Irving Mills, very important figure in Tin Pan Alley in the 20s. He was a music publisher, band leader, promoter, talent spotter, and he played an indispensable role in the careers of Duke Ellington, Cab Calloway, Benny Goodman, and on and on. And because Irving Mills was such a good businessman, people assume when his name turns up on the sheet music that he didn't write anything and he's just cutting himself in on the royalties. But Mitch Parrish, Mitchell Parrish, who wrote Stardust and uh, Valari and uh, just hear those sleigh bells jingling, ring ting tingling too. Mitch told me that, in fact, Irving Mills did contribute to those songs. And specifically in this case, he wrote the entire lyric and was, in fact, just cutting in Gene Austin on the royalties because Austin was his main song demonstrator, and he didn't want to lose him. Uh, Johnny Mathis, uh, whom we heard last week, recorded this one too. In fact, Columbia could easily put out an album called Johnny Mathis Sings the Ukrainian Songbook. Uh, but this week, we'll go for Nat Cole. This song is so American, from the buoyant America of the 1920s, but it is co-written by Isidore Minsky from Odessa. 
When my sugar walks down the street All the little birdies go tweet, tweet, tweet And in the evening when the sun goes down It's never dark when she's around She's so affectionate and I'll say this That when she kisses me I sure stay kissed Cause when my sugar walks down the street The little birdies go tweet, tweet, tweet Does it get any more Ukrainian than that? Nat King Cole with orchestra arranged and conducted by Billy May. Music and lyrics by Jimmy McHugh, Gene Austin and that great son of Odessa, Irving Mills. When my sugar walks down the street, all the little birdies go tweet, tweet, tweet. Be careful trying that in Odessa this weekend. Uh, when my sugar walks down the street, all the Russian soldiers retreat, retreat. It doesn't always go like that. This story continues to evolve, possibly nuclearly. And we will stay on it as we have done all week on the Mark Stein Show. We'll also have music, not all of it Ukrainian. And Rick McGuinness's uh, movie pick right here over the weekend at Stein Online. Stay safe, stay free. Stein's Clubland Q&A is a production of Mark Stein Enterprises and Oak Hill Media. All rights reserved.